The Start On On Demand. Hello there, it's Brett. It's the Thursday edition of the podcast for The Start on 680 CJOB with Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Today we're going to speak with Global's Reggie Cicchini on this op-ed that ran in the New York Times from someone in a so-called resistance within the White House. Trump is tweeting, treason? Then we're going to talk about how you can buy a car in a vending machine. What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in a vending machine? Addictions Clinics. The first rapid access addictions clinic has opened in Winnipeg. We'll speak to a doctor in Toronto to find out if they work there because they've been open there for about a year. Also, the Dragon Boat Festival is on this weekend in support of Cancer Care Manitoba and the Children's Hospital. We'll speak to someone from Cancer Care Manitoba Foundation about this exciting and wonderful event. And then finally, we will speak to the University of Manitoba Students' Union after shocking allegations of sexual assault were announced this week. Right now, what was the tweet this morning? Treason? Yes, people are asking the question, who wrote the anonymous New York Times op-ed about Donald Trump? This on the heels of a book, uh, you know, a lot of people calling it a a tell-all, an inside look as to what's really happening in the White House. Pulitzer Prize winning author Bob Woodward from Woodward and Bernstein, who broke the all the president's men story wide open during Watergate back during the Nixon era. And we're almost singularly responsible for bringing down that administration. Now, a question about who, first of all, had the audacity, the gall, maybe the courage of their convictions to go to the New York Times and write an op-ed piece, Loren, that really tells the inside story as to what's going on inside this administration, at least in the eyes of the author. Yeah, and it, it sort of backs what Bob Woodward was saying. And, and an excerpt from that op-ed, which was anom- anonymous, uh, says, quote, it may be cold comfort in this chaotic era, era, but Americans should know that there are adults in the room. We fully recognize what is happening and we are trying to do what's right, even when Donald Trump won't. Joining on Joining us from Washington now is Reggie Cicchini. And Reggie, boy, it just keeps on going down there. Uh, what's the fallout today? And, and how many people are waging a bet on just who may have written those words? Oh, absolutely everyone in Washington right now has their bets out as to who it could be. Every newsroom has a little list saying, do you think it's this person? Do you think it's this person? I don't think that we're going to walk away with this, you know, having it been written by the president himself or the vice president, despite the language that's used in there. But it will be interesting to see if this person uh, does end up getting outed. The president already tweeting this morning about the deep state and the left and the fake news media before trying to flip his tweet to say, well, look, the economy's booming, so look over here. So, Reggie, when you go through the the list of prospective, if we call them suspects for now, it is ironic that you mentioned, you know, well, I don't think we're going to find out that the president wrote it himself or maybe Vice President Pence, uh, you know, because people are dissecting the language, almost every word of this op-ed to try and get clues as to who wrote it. Is there a sense that it might be a little bit of uh, distraction and that maybe it comes internally? Maybe this is very well planned. 
Absolutely. I mean, this could be somebody, when they say that there was a high-level White House administration official that put this op-ed together, that doesn't mean exactly that it came from the West Wing. This could be somebody who's from one of the lower-level cabinets, who's from, you know, an office kind of six or seven blocks away from the White House, who's just higher up in that part of the administration. That's one thing that everybody's looking at right now. The second thing is this very well could be somebody who's inside the White House and trying to give the American people a closer glimpse as to what's happening inside the Oval Office. There are already Twitter accounts that pop up like rogue POTUS staff and rogue White House staff that say that they're people on the inside trying to give a, you know an inside look to those who are on the outside. It's just a matter of, you know, will the president actually find this person like he's bowing to? Reggie, uh, the, one, the Global News article also points out that uh, there's speculation from the Washington Post that it could have come from deceased Senator John McCain. Well, I mean, that that's one kind of working theory out there. The president and Senator McCain did have kind of an adversarial relationship with each other. The president wasn't a big fan of him. The president didn't like that so many people were out there saying the greatest things about him, you know, in the week that he died. I don't see Senator McCain as having written something like this, uh, you know, to kind of entice the anger out of the White House. You know, Senator McCain was the kind of person who spoke it true and as it was. So if, the, if he wanted to say something like this, I can't imagine that he would have left a, a byline off of it. It's hard to predict what U.S. President Trump might do today with this moving forward and how he might react. He's already called it fake news. But is there a bigger concern here about what it might say about all these people within his administration who keep coming out to speak against him? Who's left to help him moving forward to to help keep things on track in that country? Well, he's got a very close you know, number of people that work with him. But look, we've seen this just with the Bob Woodward book that came out that when he tried to go and talk to people around the president to get him to talk to him over the phone, the people close to the president still wouldn't go up and ask him to give a phone call. So, I mean, the president has the people around him that are there to help him and then help get the agenda move forward. But he's l- starting to lose, you know, absolute control of the people that are super around him, like his uh, his chief communications and his chief of uh, his chief of staff. These are the people that were still hearing are calling the president names so it really is hard to see who the president has close to him at all times that he's actually going to be able to trust so the the author calling themselves part of the resistance not the traditional left-wing resistance that many people seem to associate with that word calling the president's behavior and tactics a behavior erratic and immoral how you know, it's one thing to come forward this with this, Reggie, but can we can we call this a, a little bit uh, of chicken, uh, you know what, not to come out and put your name on this? Well, it depends. If you're looking at this in the way that the person wrote it, they're obviously a Republican who wrote this, who works inside the White House, because, look, they say that the administration has put out some good things right now. The president has actually done some good work in uh, in some of the policy that's been able to be created. This person not coming forward, sure, they felt that their job would be in jeopardy if they put their name on this with such a negative tone painted towards the president. But I think that's what this person is trying to get across through this op-ed. We're in here trying to make sure that the president doesn't do something off the cuff and does something that's good for the country and won't cause some kind of global crisis. And if they put their name on there, they run the risk of not being able to be a part of that group. And they may be the one person who's able to stop the president from doing something. So I think that might be one way to look at this op-ed as to why there's no byline on it. Well, not only is uh, their, would their job have been on the line, but based on this tweet that Trump put out saying treason, there could be a lot more on the line. Any indication that uh, the White House is going to go after the Times or the person who wrote this? 
Well, the president has said that he wants the New York Times to turn this person over to the government. Obviously, that's not going to happen. There are freedoms in place that allow the media to run as the media does. This is also not an act of treason. Senator Lindsey Graham was on CNN last night saying, look, I'd be pissed off if this was written about me. But under the Constitution, this is not an act of treason. This is just the president using his his platform to kind of rile up his base to say, look at how many people are saying bad things about me. And, you know, he was at another rally last night and his base is still extremely strong, or at least it appears to be. Absolutely. And I mean, he's on the road for the next two days. He's in Montana today, heads to South Dakota tomorrow. He's got another Make America Great Again rally tonight. So you can imagine that this is going to be one of those situations where he points to the cameras, calls out the fake news, makes everybody boo at them, and then he'll get his base rallied up. Because remember, there are 40, around 40% of Americans still support the, uh, the president no matter what he does. So going forward, all he looks at and says, 40% of you like me, I'm going to keep carrying you with me. This may, in fact, galvanize those folks, Brett. Yeah, Reggie Giacchini, thank you so much for joining us this morning from Washington. Appreciate it. Thank you. Global's Reggie Giacchini, live on 680-CJOB. Kind of perfect that Steinbeck Auto Dealers presented our previous weather report because uh, I, I know they have human beings, great human beings out in Steinbeck, but a company called Carvana has opened a total of 11 used car vending machines in the United States. Now, vending machines are all the rage in Asia. You can buy just about anything, including luxury cars, in vending machines in certain parts of Asia. When I saw the commercial for this yesterday, and I'm like, vending? Yeah, right. Like, I I like the latest idea, but... um, This is true. Online used car dealer Carvana has opened two more of its signature car vending machines, unveiling eight-story all-glass towers this week in Orlando and Washington, D.C., where customers can retrieve vehicles like a bag of chips. Both hold up to 30 cars and are equipped with four delivery bays, newly designed coin receptacles, and customer waiting areas, but no salespeople per the company's business model. And should you decide that you want (laughs) to buy a car... Online, they will, you make your decision, then they send you a giant coin and you go to the vending machine, you put it in, it brings the car that you selected, you get in it and you have seven days to decide whether or not you want to keep it. Kelly does not like this. He's grimacing as we sit here. I've never, ever felt so old in my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) So you wouldn't buy a car Uh, in a vending machine then? Not a hope in you know what. Yeah. Uh, I uh, and, and not that I'm overly fond of sales guys trying to reach their monthly quota, but I still I have to feel there's the a touch line. And, yeah, exactly. Well, you have seven days. No, I'm not doing it. <laughs> take it in first. And take it for a rip, Kelly, and then <laughs> take it out for a rip. <laughs> no, I don't. I rarely use a vending machine to buy potato chips. For goodness' sake, so uh, I'm what not buying a about? car. What are you worried yeah. about? I don't worry about anything. I just I I like to I like to be able to feel and touch what I buy. Jeff, what do you think about this? I I think it's a weird take, but all right, Kelly, you do what you want to do. <laughs> no, <laughs> no be, we weren't talking about me. We I'd, be, about I'd be okay with it, especially with a car, because I've got such uh, low sales resistance. Like I got lucky when I bought my car that that guy didn't take advantage of me, because I honest I bought the first car he showed me. <laughs> really? Like, we got this red one. I was like, let's like go for red. a ride. <laughs> He's like, wow. well, let's go talk financing. I was like, oh, okay. 
And a mere six hours later, I drove off in my new car. Why does that have to take so long to buy a car? Well, Why can't is, that be a 30-minute ordeal? This is what Carvana says. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm you on board do with it that. from the comfort of your home. Pick the one you want. Tell us the features you want, what you're prepared to spend. And if we can find that vehicle for you, not only can you go to one of these uh, vending machines, if you prefer, we'll just bring it to your house. Well, what do they do about the financing, though? Well, You're using a credit When's card. When's the last or time you, you sat I mean, down face to face with someone about financing? With your car. I do all my stuff online, like application, everything done, virtual signatures. I don't talk to people anymore. Yuck. It removes. Wow. You do it for a living. <laughs> it removes the upsell, though, because I think you're right. If you would just, if you had the vending machine, yes. you wouldn't, you might not end up with like the leather seats and the heated seats and mm. the undercoating or whatever always gets tossed in at the end. And I get everybody has a job to do, but I would like to eliminate that part because it, it takes so long because there's extra things yeah. that they want to talk uh. to you about, which I get. That's their job. It's actually, it worked out in my favor that it took so long because I was sitting in a bench waiting for the financing section to take part in when I was buying my car. And I was just texting a buddy. I was like, hey, I'm buying a car. And they're like, He's like, he just says, say no to everything they try to sell you. <laughs> and I, was like, I didn't even know they were going to try to sell me on anything. So I was like, oh, that's good advice. Thanks. And then what about 20 minutes the- later, I was just like, nope, nope, nope. What about all those subsidiary charges? You know, uh, there's all these things Prep that charge, get published. Yeah, exactly. Charge. Yeah. Does that you're wearing a red does shirt? That charge. A, does that get eliminated for, by uh, going the that? I don't know. That okay. I don't know because uh, some of those are purportedly mandatory charges. But this is just a sign of the times. One more thing where our buying habits and the way we used to do things is getting disrupted. I think it's it's pretty cool. I don't know if I could actually do it myself, but uh, it's something to think about. Kelly, uh, one of our listeners is getting in on what Jeff usually does with you. He says, this is Don, who says, Kelly still drives a chariot. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. you, you got to spread it out a bit. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in a vending machine, Mackling? Oh, boy. Uh, like, I've seen some pretty cool stuff. Uh, weirdest thing, I guess, is a pair of underwear. What? You know, Best Buy has their vending machines at the airports. You can buy just about yeah. up to like $500 things at the airport in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Wow. Best Buy is like their head office, so I think they've been trying that out. I was going to say airports is a good place to find weird stuff in a vending machine. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking online right now. In Japan, they even have a vegetable vending machine and there's a head of iceberg lettuce and then a piece of salary below and, and all the rest. I don't know. They, I think it depends on where you live because I think in some of those cities they're so big yeah. and you can't get around that there's all these you know vending machines lined up to give you everything from beer to veggies to a sweater I see on here. You can buy your sweater through the vending machine. Oh, wow, yeah. that sounds healthy. A head of iceberg lettuce. Do you remember when we first moved into this building and we got the vending machine and it was full of healthy options? <laughs> Not like a head of iceberg lettuce, but, you know, granola bars and all these weird organic drinks. And it and, was just health food. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Then, and like three weeks later, I don't think a single item had been sold. Yeah. So then I came in one day and all the health stuff was out and all the potato chips and chocolate bars mm-hmm. and Coke and stuff were in and within three days it was empty. You think would have mixed it? <laughs> Granola bars on one shelf and chips on the other. Did they have to get rid of all the healthy options? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think as you can still buy the occasional granola bar. We were like, this guy's barking up the wrong tree with his vending <laughs> machine at a radio station. Does he not have done any market research? <laughs>
<laughs> I remember going to Edmonton uh, in like 1999, I think, and a buddy of mine had just moved out there from Winnipeg, and he was all excited because Don Ayers, which is basically a Euro, yeah, um, they were everywhere there. He's like, oh, you got to try Don Air. I never had one before, but they're all over the place in Edmonton. That's what he sounds like. I'm not just exaggerating. And I even, he even showed them that they had vending machines that sold... Don Ayers. I don't know that I would trust uh, something oh, like that in the vending machine. Fresh. At the U of M, they had a French fry vending machine where they actually cooked the French fries. There was a fryer okay, inside the vending machine. Yes, at Umsu. That has to be a fire hazard. Back, that doesn't even make any sense. I promise you, I promise you, it was a thing in 1990. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. But right now, Greg, we want to talk about addictions. Yes, uh, we've been talking about this crisis, this brewing crisis, and it's not the sole answer to Winnipeg's growing meth crisis, but the health minister says a new clinic that just opened yesterday will help Manitobans waiting for help. It's called a Rapid Access Addiction Clinic. And the first one on Bannatyne Avenue will be one of five opening across the province this year. So essentially how they work is you don't need an appointment. You'll meet with a counsellor on the days that they're open. And then if need be, staff there could direct you to prescribe medications that might help you transition out of an addiction, uh, potentially into a treatment program. There's also access to doctors. Manitoba is copying the system that's now placed in Ontario, where the province is battling, that province is battling an opioid crisis. One of those clinics in Ontario is at the Women's College Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Meldon Cahan is the medical director of its substance use service program and joins us now. Thanks for coming on with us. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. As I understand it, the clinic there opened in the spring of 2017. Have you actually seen it make a difference to people who are living with addictions there? Oh, yeah, I I think so. I think that many patients come in and they're uh, desperate, they're very unhappy, they're blaming themselves for their addiction, uh, and they haven't been able to access help. Uh, So if you have a patient, for example, with a serious drinking problem or or, uh, and they go to the traditional addiction facility, they're given an assessment uh, booking for uh, some weeks later, the assessment doesn't provide treatment, and then they're they're told to come back for some formal structured program. Uh, there's no individualized uh, uh, care plan given for them. Uh, whereas in the rapid access clinic, we we give uh, offer treatment and hope on the very first visit, and that includes medication for alcohol or opiate use disorder or other disorders plus. Uh, counseling and follow-up and referral to community services. So, doctor, uh, I used to be in sales, and and sometimes the death of a sale and a potential sale was the individual you were trying to convince to buy something leaving the premise. And so this whole idea of having people come back for further treatment, to me, is is full of folly. It has it has so many holes in it. And is that one of the uh, one of the bridges that these clinics uh, clearly are, are, are bridging? Absolutely. I mean, many patients who are addicted, they 
they don't know that anybody can help them. They're, they're skeptical. They think their problem is, is entirely psychological and is entirely their own fault uh, through weakness, etc. So they don't know that any addiction program or medication is going to help them. So if they keep on running into these barriers, they feel hopeless, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to be stuck forever. Nobody could do anything for me. So one of our, uh, the main goals on that very first visit is to try and engage the patient to say, look, there are treatments that, uh, that can and do help. Uh, uh, this addiction is not your own fault. Uh, there are predictable reasons why you're having trouble stopping uh, opiates or alcohol. Uh, it's a neurological condition to a, to a considerable extent. These medications can help you. And so when the patient leaves, they have a sense of optimism. They have a sense that they've been heard and that something can be done. You said that the addiction, uh, one of the things that you tell patients is the addiction isn't your fault. A lot of people would disagree with that. Why do you say it's not their fault? Well, um, for example, at our clinic, uh, many of the patients are, are women. It's Women's College Hospital. Uh, and they have a history of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. They've had uh, very uh, uncomfortable and difficult situations in their childhood or adulthood. So they go through, uh, you know, through their daily life uh, with tremendous anxiety and uh, fear and low self-esteem and self-blame and nightmares. And then they find that alcohol or, or opiates makes them feel better, in fact, makes them feel normal. So they begin to rely on alcohol and opiates to get through the day, to function, to cope with uh, their responsibilities. And then, unfortunately, there are physiological processes that come into play. They develop tolerance, that is, the alcohol or opiates don't work as well. Then they start to develop withdrawal symptoms that are very frightening and potentially dangerous. So now they're stuck. They're, in a way, a slave to the drug. They can't stop it even if they want to. But their thinking part of the brain is saying, no, this drug is no good for me. The, the deeper part of the brain is saying, I need this to get up in the morning. I need this to do uh, what I can to get through the day and ward off those terrible withdrawal symptoms. So uh, I can tell you that very few people, there are some, but very few people are using alcohol and opiates just to have fun. They're, they're, um, they're coping with serious uh, anxiety and, and mental health issues, and they have physiological processes that make it very hard for them to stop. One thing and even myself, we're all learning as we go, as as Manitoba particularly continues to talk about math and the growing math problem here. But what many people might not realize is when they're looking for that help, yes, they might want to get into a treatment program, but there's actual medications that you can take to, to curb your alcohol addiction or to help with your o opioid. So it's drugs to replace drugs. Is is that how that might work? Uh yeah, so let's say for opiate addiction, there's uh, methadone and buprenorphine. And yes, those, those uh, medications are opiates, uh, but they work to reduce uh, withdrawal symptoms and cravings, uh, and they don't interfere with cognition because they're very slow acting, so they don't make you stoned. Uh, you're able to go about your uh, day normally. So it's kind of like a vaccine. The measles vaccine is, in fact, a virus. It's an attenuated or, or damaged virus, so it doesn't cause 
uh, measles per se, but it protects against the measles virus. So that's how it works. For, for alcohol, we have what are called anti-craving drugs, and they act on the brain's reward center to reduce the kind of a buzz or reinforcing effect that alcohol uh, causes. It doesn't mean that you don't need counseling and support, but it makes it a lot easier when you're not tormented by powerful craving. Yeah, the back-to-school experience, as we all know, is unique to every child. And so you may have been born and raised in the community that you're going to school in. You might have just moved here from northern Manitoba. A lot of people might not know that there's lots of communities that don't have high schools in northern Manitoba and on those First Nations communities. So they have to come to Winnipeg. No choice but to do that. You could also be someone who's a new Canadian. And so everything might feel new to you. That's Fortunato Lim's story. 30 years ago, when he was just nine, he moved from the Philippines to Winnipeg with his mom. They moved into the Riverbend neighborhood at first, and it's sort of come full circle for him. Fortunato is now the principal at Riverbend Community School and is working to connect with its diverse population. They know what they need to do in school. You know, they come in, they know what they need to do. Often in the Philippines, you know, education is kind of something that everybody, your parents push you to do, especially if you're coming to Canada. You know, all the families and families that I've spoken with, you know, uh, coming into Canada, new new families, new kids, they always talk about, you know, they, they came here to live a better life, to get a better education so that they can do better in their life. And for the most part, parents do push them to do better. And that's something that, you know, parents have always been very supportive in that way. And, you know, sometimes they say, don't even work, you know, we'll, we'll support you. You know, just focus on your school. Um, my fam- My mom was kind of that way. My mom was a single mom. She was working three jobs at a time. And she always said, I always wanted to work when I was 16. She said, no, you're not going to work. You focus on your school. You know, just just do that. So he knows exactly what it's like to be that new kid. And of course, to feel that pressure and is now connecting with parents who are coming from different backgrounds and different cultural experiences. Um, There is certainly that pressure. I mean, certainly you feel that you see that at a younger age, you know, when kids are in kindergarten to focus on because the school, how we teach here, especially in, a, in an earlier setting, is, is a lot different than how they would teach back in the Philippines. So what parents know, what parents have experienced is a lot different from here. And so they sometimes they say, well, you know, how is this going to help my child, you know, go to university? And they're only in grade one, right? And so, you know, certainly there is uh, that difference. Can you give me an example of that, like of, of something that might um, so happen? So like here, like, you know, in the early years, like we talk about play, like play is important, right? And, you know, there's many, many things that can come out of play and creativity and so on, and just the love for learning, right? And that, that curiosity that we try and foster in the early years. Uh, whereas, you know, and for some parents, it's like, well, my son needs to learn his addition, right? He needs to memorize his alphabet and so on. And But there's different ways of doing that and not just, you know, sitting down on a desk and doing some paper and, and pen task. So those are things that I know sometimes families from India, families from the Philippines, kind of do ask about, you know, how come this is what I'm seeing in the, in the school, let's say in the kindergarten class, in the grade one, two class. It's really neat. This is, we're speaking to Fortunato Lim, who was a principal at Riverbank Community School, chatting with him earlier this week. And he was saying, you know, he has high hopes for this next generation. When he came from the Philippines, he said he called it, he came with what was like Tagalish, like the combination of Tagalog and English, and, and he didn't speak the language very well here. And he says now he feels like that's going to be what makes a difference with all these kids coming from different ba- backgrounds and languages and reintroducing some of the original languages too, Ojibwe and Cree, back into the school. One of the things uh, when I first came 
uh, in the school here was I don't think I was necessarily encouraged to speak my language or any other languages that people came with. Um, you know, it was kind of strict in a way where you spoke English and in French you spoke French. Um, and so whereas now I know that the difference is we actually encourage our kids to speak their language, to bring in their culture, to bring in their gifts and talents into the school. So that's one thing certainly that is a big difference, you know, when I look at schools now from where I experienced school as a settler, as an immigrant here, uh, and how we see kids now when they're coming in new. What impact um, do you think that can have on them? I think identity, right? You know, they're, I mean, obviously, you know, you want, they want to be Canadian and all that, but, you know, being Canadian is... Is, is bringing your own identity into it. And so, you know, when kids come feeling that they have their own strength already coming in, they're just going to get better at, you know, at uh, in their acquisition of, of the language or in learning in general, right? Because they feel like they belong. Confidence. Yes, absolutely. That was Fortunata Lim with the Riverbend Community School. Great story with him. He landed in that community as an immigrant 30 years ago and now is one of its principals. And of course, just as a side note, I had to ask, his mom is extremely proud of him. Well, I, I can only imagine. I can remember being in grade two at Isaac Brock School, a multicultural school, even back then, back in the early 19, mid-1970s, and having the conversation about where you were from and multiculturalism, and our teachers going through the entire class about, you know, where are you from and what are you was basically the question. And everybody put up their hand and then we went through all the students. And once you heard your your heritage mentioned you were to put down your hand and we got this great big huge list. And at the end, I was the only one with my hand still up. I was usually the first one with my hand up, but in this case, I was the last one with my hand up. And my teacher said, Greg, why do you still have, did we not mention like what you are? I said, yeah, uh, nobody mentioned Canadian. Well, we're all Canadian. I said, no, no, I'm Canadian. And that's the way I saw myself. And it was really bizarre that that was a unique perception for children of six, seven, eight years old. And now he's saying that all the students in his classroom, no matter where they come from, that is what they're feeling, which is so fantastic. Right. But working to keep the things that they they may have moved with, came with, their language, because as he said, that's part of their identity and that's going to help with their confidence to become stronger smarter students moving forward. And what and for me, being Canadian is recognizing that and respecting that. And so it was really eye-opening for me uh, that day. I'll never forget it. It was almost 40 years ago. It was, uh, it was a, a fantastic lesson that I carry with me to this day. Question of the day at cjob.com pertains to school as well. Do you think it's harder for teachers to keep kids engaged today compared to previous generations? Well, it's right now, and I... Th- it's yes, 54.55% say yes, and then 39.39% say probably the same as it was when we were kids because, hey, kids will be kids, and then no is just 6%. Interesting. Yeah, well, because I was wondering when we put this question together, is it harder for kids because everyone is, especially kids, you got to assume, are grow like we've sort of adapted to the instant gratification, right? The cell phones weren't a thing when we were kids. But now if we want access to information, like when, when I was a kid, if I wanted to remember something, I just had to remember it. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I had to wait for my brain to retrieve the information. Now I can just pick up my phone and Google it. And you had encyclopedias. My parents, when they moved out of the farm, left us the box of encyclopedias and books. For, and it's hilarious because every time I ask my kids a question, they'll say, well, just Google it, Mom. 
And I said, well, but what do you think? Like, why do you think this is happening? Because we need to push to keep that sort of analytical thought going and making sure we're not just looking for the answers, but trying to problem solve on our own because it is just on our finger, at it, our fingertips. It can drive me nuts at times, but my kids, when I'm in the car with them, bombard me with questions. Dad, 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 and it's over and it's absolutely fantastic because they are still asking those questions and they're not just going to Google. Uh, Google probably more accurate than I am at time, but the, uh, the the times that they want to engage in these discussions about what's the biggest city in the world and, and all these questions that would be easily found on Google, they're still interacting. And so, so there's still hope. Kids are still curious. But in the meantime, Loren McNabb, more questions this morning from students at the U of M who learned yesterday multiple reports of sexual harassment or sexual assault had been made to officials there, resulting in five investigations. Yeah, we don't really know how many reports came forward or how many people had complaints. We do know there are now five investigations underway and that two faculty members have already been placed on leave. And while the school says it's also connected with Clinic, which is a Winnipeg-based organization that deals heavily with sexual assault and sexual harassment, uh, it's going to immediately start further counseling on campus. The students' union there believes more still needs to be done. Jacob Sanderson is the president of UMSU and joins us on the phone now. Jacob, thank you for taking the time with us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. The question I have for folks this morning and students there is what are what are students feeling as they wake up hearing this news about allegations against potentially some of their professors? And what concerns do you have that that this might just be the tip of the iceberg? Well, I think students are very uneasy. Um, This is obviously a very difficult time of the year to be um, hearing of these types of things. Um, This is supposed to be a, a really fun celebratory time right now during orientation week. Um, and we've met and talked with uh, thousands of new students already, and it's, and it's a super exciting time to be here. And so then when you hear sobering news like this, it's, it's quite difficult. But um, obviously, I think that it was very necessary for the university to come out and speak about this as they did at this time. Um, we cannot move forward sort of celebrating this campus community if the campus community isn't safe. That's the baseline that needs to be met um, by the university. Clearly, it has not been met in the past, and I, and I think that the university needs to do much better in addressing these types of situations going forward. So um, sort of admitting the truth and being a little bit more transparent than they've been in the past is, is certainly a start. Jacob, a uh, question for you. You know, uh, it's been a long time since I uh, graced the halls of the University of Manitoba, and I lose that term uh, very loosely. Uh, but, you know, the university has has long had, had, had I don't want to use the term culture, I used it earlier, but there are certain things that have been going on on university campuses for a long time, uh, student to student, uh, student to faculty, and th- this this can't be news to folks that, that these sorts of things have been happening. Well, it's definitely not, um, and we've, um, I mean, there's always reports that come out um, from students that, are, that have faced sexual harassment or sexual violence or sexual assault on campus. And, and you're right, sometimes that comes from faculty and sometimes that comes from fellow students. Um, internally, UMSU has um, done what we can to address this. We've been working with a prominent student group on campus called Justice for Women over the last three to four years. 
to provide consent culture training to all of our faculty associations, which receive student levies. Uh, many of these put on events, and so we think it's integral that these students know um, how to put on safe events, how to understand power dynamics, how to understand consent culture, um, and how to provide the necessary resources and safe spaces for students that come to their events, and to be prepared in case there are any incidents that happen. Um, but I think that the university um, clearly does need to do more. Um, as, as we learned, um, there are serious issues with regards to how they've handled these investigations in the past um, with, with respect to how little transparency has been shown and that that potentially could put other students, potentially even other campuses at risk when these professors are dismissed without any form of disclosure. And then on our campus, I think that we need more proactive and reactive measures. Um, proactively, we've been advocating for, um, for a while now that all faculty and staff, especially those that have direct relations with students, face mandatory consent training. Now, yesterday, President Barnard in his speech um, committed to this, and we're very pleased to hear that, but we want to see them go even further. Um, many universities across Canada, including the University of Toronto, Carleton University, and the University of Alberta, have standalone dedicated support centers for survivors of sexual violence. We would like to see that happen at the University of Manitoba, where our counseling center is often um, overrun, that there's often far too large of lineups, and people are often there not um, for the entirety of the week, and we need to do better. Uh, we've talked with people from the counseling center, and we're told that there are upwards of five complaints per week of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, clearly, this is a too much too prevalent of an issue on our campus, and we need to be better prepared with how to handle it. Jacob, I want to just revisit uh, something that you, you mentioned briefly. You mentioned the words power dynamics. Wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on that and why it's important to understand what it means. Definitely. So in terms of power dynamics, um, what you're looking at there is where consent can, is, is very hard to draw upon due to one uh, person, one consenting individual being in a position of authority over another um, presumably consenting individual. So, for instance, uh, for, for, for someone's boss, um, if, if you're going to have any sort of sexual relations with your boss or if you're going to have any sort of sexual relations with a professor, say, or anyone who holds some form of authority over you, be it that they employ you or be it that they're able to grade you, um, there's power dynamics at play there. And so it's very difficult um, to be able to draw consent in those situations um, because your, your consent is clearly obstructed if you feel as though um, you not consenting to any sort of sexual activity with that person could negatively affect you. So um, in our view, um, that's, that's something that's extremely concerning that needs to be addressed, especially with the high prevalence of professors um, or of faculty members, I should say, um, that have been engaging in um, sexual misconduct with students. Do we have the support? Does the university have the support in place today? Should more students come forward, Jacob? Because often in these situations, when revelations are, are made or allegations are made, people feel empowered to maybe tell their own stories. Is something in place there today? Should you start hearing from more students? Um, so I think that gets back to what I was saying earlier about the Sexual um, Violence Support Center. There are supports in place. Um, the university has a counseling center on, on fifth floor. Um, I would encourage anyone who... Um, has experienced this to go there. However, we still maintain that supports were, uh, that do exist right now are not adequate, and in the future that those need to be updated with the inclusion of a standalone dedicated um, sexual violence support center. Jacob Sanderson, president of the University of Manitoba Students' Union, thank you very much for your time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. 
The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.